Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture reading is from Matthew 19, 13 through 22. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. All right. Thank you very much. Hey, good morning. Uh, that was lame. I'm not even going to do it again. Normally they'd be like, good morning. Okay. Um, I, think I, I think I blew my voice out singing worship. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. Um, okay. So uh, this is our passage today. Now, you, thousands are wondering, why isn't he doing verses 1 through 13? Um, so back in Matthew chapter 5, there's a whole passage on adultery where I covered, um, I'm sorry, on divorce, marriage and divorce, where I covered that. And when I did that, I also covered 1 through 12. So if you really want to know what Jesus has to say about divorce and whether or not, you know, how it should be looked at and this and that, go back to Matthew chapter 5 and look up the one on marriage and divorce. And then go to our website, watermark.com slash counseling and sign up for counseling. (laughs) Um, Just throwing it out there, just in case. Never know. Um, Okay, so... This is our passage today. Glad you guys are here. I, I was not here last week. It's the week after Thanksgiving, so I'm wondering how many of you even knew that. Um, and uh, in Sam's book, I was, I was out with my family in St. Pete. It was our 16th anniversary, I think, pretty sure. Um, and uh, it was awesome. So um, we took our kids with us because we're a pot of dolphins. We all hang out together everywhere we go. Okay, now, that's our, that's our slogan. We're a pot of dolphins. So we do. Now, um, we say that mainly to our kids when they don't want to be around us. Okay, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going we're gonna, to, there's two movements in this passage. Jesus talks to some kids, and then Jesus talks to a rich man. Um, all of this goes together, and people rarely read them together, but they really should, because there's, it all intertwines, and it all kind of goes together. So I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. We're going to jump into this passage, and we're going to cover this huge whole thing, all right? Let's pray. Father, we, we gather here. Um, to find peace and to find purpose, um, to find community and family, to be accepted as we are, to, uh, <clears throat> to, to broaden our understanding about life and about the deepest parts of it all. And so I ask that as we gather here that you would uh, help us to be present and here and, and, uh, and gathered as, as family and listening to you together. I ask that you would uh, allow us to have open hearts and open minds. Um, give us not just information and knowledge, but give us wisdom on, on what this means for us, 
um, especially today's passage as we, as we, as we cover some uh, subjects that are difficult for all of us. Um, and I ask that uh, I would remember the things I've studied and communicate clearly that we would just be here and present together feeding each other. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so uh, verse 13. Turn on your Bibles. Go here. Then people brought the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. So the disciples sometimes look like jerks. Um, and I'm just being honest, there's lots of passages where disciples are like, Ugh, get away from me. And there's ladies bringing children to Jesus to have him pray over them. And the disciples are like, no. Um, okay, there's, there's two cultural things coming together and that butt up against each other here. Um, thing one, um, in, the, in the Jewish communities in the first century, um, it was common to bring your children to rabbis, to teachers of the law, to scribes, to Pharisees, to um, the priests, um, to have them pray for them. And there's several reasons why. Um, number one, um, to receive a blessing. Uh, it was just a, a common sort of, it was a show, show of respect. Sir, I respect your authority and your, your power before God and your holiness. Please bless my child. Number two was children died, um, the vast majority of them before the age of 12. Um, most children did not see the age of 13. There were all kinds of things um, that were dangerous for them. There was, they were very susceptible to disease and sickness and death. And only the ones with the strongest immune systems, the, one that were, the, ones, the ones that were able to sort of avoid these diseases were the ones that survived. Um, and so in general, there was this desire to bring your children to be blessed and prayed over for, um, for, for health, um, for strength, um, for longevity of life, all kinds of things. These parents are, are just constantly caring for their children and desperate to see them live. Um, and it's hard for us to imagine a world like that. There are places in the world that are like that. Uh, my brother lives in a tribe in Indonesia that is like that, where they don't even name their kids till the age of two because most of them die. Um, these kinds of, this is, in, in some parts of the world, this, and sometimes periods of time, this is a normal occurrence. And so one of the ways that they would, do their best to help their children was to bring them to holy people to pray. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, and so maybe you were taught this, there's just kind of this um, teaching that like, well, they recognized Jesus as the Messiah and they brought their children to the Messiah to be blessed. They probably didn't even know who Jesus was. They may have heard about his healings, this and that. Um, but in general, he's a rabbi. They're going to bring their children to him to be blessed. Okay, now, the other thing happening here is that it was also customary for holy men who would have high status always, it was customary for holy men to be protected by their followers from people of lower status who could prevent them from going on their way and doing their super important work, right? Um, so the disciples in general have a posture that all disciples had that they're following their, their rabbi to go do something important and to do the work of God. And there are sick people that come and there are low status people that come, children that come and they say, I'm sorry, this is a man of high status. Um, you're keeping him from doing his important work and in general, you would just say, oh, you're, you're right, I'm sorry and you would respect this. So what we have here is these two traditions butting up against each other uh, in the presence of Jesus. You have children whose parents are bringing them to be blessed and prayed over and, and hands laid on them and then you have disciples who are playing the honor and status games of the first century. Um, 
where the disciples tend to seem like jerks, they're, they're actually just doing exactly what they've been taught to do their whole lives. They're doing um, things that are actually are very honoring to Jesus, um, keeping lower status people from him so he can continue on his way. Um, but uh, this is where sort of the controversy comes in in this passage. There, there comes a moment where you have to make a choice between do I honor the wealthy and the high status, um, the wealth part, we're going to get to that in a bit. Do we honor the high status person in the room? Um, if we have to make a choice, do we honor the high status person or do we bless the lower status person? And in the first century, this would be a very difficult conversation. Okay? Um, we now have the teachings of Christ and we can look and see. And there's plenty of places where you see the disciples keeping people from Christ. Um, uh, you see a passage here in um, Matthew chapter 20 where there's these three beggars who come to Christ, uh, that come to him and they're asking um, for some attention and for a blessing. And it says, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet and they, should, and, and they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them, what do you want me to do for you? So this is another time when the choice has to be made and the disciples say, rather than letting the children come, uh, we're going to protect the high status of our leader, right? Rather than caring for someone who is lower, we're going to care for the status of someone who is higher. Now, this comes into play a lot. Um, and people don't realize how applicable this is. There's a lot of, in the last few years, um, huge church leaders whose congregations have protected them while not protecting the people who have been abused by them, right? And, and so you have to, to make a choice. Am I going to honor the high status of, of our spiritual leader or am I going to really care and listen and bless the person who has been hurt and abused? Um, what am I going to do? And by and large, we tend to care for the highest person because that actually, we stand to gain more from this. This is the situation these people are in, okay? Um, and so while it's hard for us to understand the motivation of the disciples, this is it. And so Jesus looks at this and says, uh, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. And so Jesus has a different response than most people would have, um, as usual. He kind of turns around, sees the children, sees his disciples stopping them, the lower status person from coming and interfering with the high status work. And he says, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding what this is all about. Let these children come to me. And he spends time with them and he sits and he touches them and he blesses them. Him touching them alone would have, um, uh, it, it actually ran the risk of, if they were sick or anything, it, it, he actually ran the risk of, of being declared impure. So he couldn't even enter the temple. All kinds of things are at play here, okay? And, and this would have been a pretty shocking thing for Jesus to do um, in that culture and in this day. But all of this is pretty fascinating because when you read the response of Jesus, he says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This is a huge statement, Huge. And in the first church, it was actually incredibly true. When we talk about the kingdom of God, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute too, the kingdom of God, um, it, is, uh, it, it is basically, I'm going to try to narrow this down for this conversation, and then we're going to go bigger in a minute. Um, in, in this mindset, it's, it is, is the citizens of the king following the kingdom. So Jesus is pointing to a time when things are made right, and God's people are there following their king, okay? He says the kingdom of God uh, is made up of these. So like, in general, when we think about the kingdom of God, the church is part of the kingdom of God. That is us gathered together. We are citizens, a gathering of the citizens of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, okay? And he says, the kingdom of God is made up of, of, of such as these. 
In the first century, this was incredibly true. The vast majority of, of Christians in the first century, first two centuries, were slaves in the Roman Empire. The vast majority of them, and people don't realize this. Uh, so when we read these passages in the scriptures that even mention slavery and talk about slavery, they are written and read by slaves. Um, this is them. They are talking to each other. Um, and so there's even, um, if you look at the makeup of the church, it was made up of the poor, the slave, the immigrant, the pariah, the social outcasts. This is the people who made up the church. All the people whom Rome rejected tended to end up in the church where they could find community and family and life, and purpose, and this higher way of living. Um, in fact, so there's a letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to this guy named Philemon, um, who, who owned, who was a, the head of a household, so every household had slaves, and there was a slave in his house named Onesimus who had stolen some money and had run away, um, and, and he, he ends up with Paul in a city of Ephesus about, about 20 miles away. Um, and, and he finds him there in Ephesus and Paul writes a letter and gives it to Onesimus and sends him back to Philemon. And the letter basically says, um, I want you to receive my brother Philemon. He calls him his brother, equal status and says, I want you to receive him not as a slave, but as a brother. Okay. So there's this like, this is how Paul views the world in light of what he, what he sees in Jesus. There's no more slave or free. There's no more Jew or Gentile. There is this equality in the kingdom where we are all here together. By the way, this guy Onesimus, this young boy, this slave Onesimus, would go on to become the bishop in Ephesus in the early church. Um, A lot of these uh, low-status people, when they entered into the church, um, soaked this up, and they learned, and they studied, and they ministered, and they end up leading the church. Um, There were women leading in the church. There were slaves leading in the church. It was this uh, incredible picture of what the kingdom of God does in this world. All right? You with me? Okay, so let's go a little farther here. Um, okay, verse 16. Um, then, then, just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So, I want you to pay attention. We go from the children, low status, accepting them, saying, Everyone, this, is, this is the audience of the kingdom. Like, this is who it's made of. And this other guy walks up, um, and he says, I want to be a part of this thing, too. How do I gain eternal life? And the question here um, is not just a normal guy who walks up. If you flip down to verse 22, it says he had great wealth. This is pivotal in understanding this passage. The fact that this guy was wealthy. Not just wealth, great wealth. Like this guy was super wealthy. Um, So um, in this day, uh, well, okay, where do I want to start here? I'm going to start with... Um, okay, so there weren't many wealthy people in the first century. There just weren't. Um, there was a limited amount of money. Um, the vast majority of people were poor. There was a few people who were wealthy and sort of uh, um, controlled everything. They owned all the land. They owned everything. And so the fact that this guy walks onto the scene, everyone there would have known who this guy is. He would have been someone of, of, of notoriety, great notoriety in their city. Because while he had great wealth everybody around him would have been sort of vying for his attention and trying to sort of kiss up to him and sort of trying to um, in some way connect with him or work for him or find some way to get at that wealth by getting uh, sort of ministering to his status, right? And so if you can do this, if you can pour into this guy, then he can lift you up out of your status in the world. So this guy had a lot of sway. Um, Everyone would have known who he is. It's like a, a movie star making a cameo walking onto the page, right? Like it's a huge deal that this guy is here. And he walks right up to Jesus. He says, how do I obtain eternal life? Now, there are two, there are, there are two particular phrases that I'm going to focus on today 
that I believe and would deeply argue have been wildly misunderstood since the time of the Reformation. Um, uh, one of them is this phrase, eternal life, and one of them is the phrase, perfect, which we're going to get to a little later. Um, the phrase, eternal life, is the word, ionios. Um, when we hear it, we tend to think the guy is asking our modern question, which is, how do I escape from hell and go to heaven? In that day, people weren't asking this question. Um, these Jewish people were asking specific questions about when, when God sets up his kingdom, because they believed he would. He's going to come, he's going to free his people from the oppression of, at different time periods, it was like the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Romans. At this point, it's the Romans, right? When God's going to free us from the Romans and establish his kingdom um, of Israel here in the Holy Land with, at the temple, the sacrifice of the temple, and, and, then, and then God sitting, Yahweh sitting on the throne. Where's our Davidic king? And this is what they're talking about. When they talk about eternal life, they're talking about the way we were created and intended to live as God's people doing the spiritual work that God has for us here. Serving over creation with the delegated authority of God. The images of God serving creation. And this, there was very specific on how this looked. But what they weren't specific on was how this would be accomplished. And so the question arises, um, how does this happen? How is the kingdom of God going to be established? What is the thing that we need to do to establish the kingdom of God so that, so that God can come, conquer the Roman Empire? When is the Messiah going to come? What's it going to look like? Um, what do we need to do to usher this thing in, right? So if you ask any rabbi in that day, they're going to have a different answer. Some of them, if they're from the school, the rabbinical school of like Shammai, they're going to say, we need to keep the law. If, you, if everyone, if all the Jewish people were to keep the law, um, the kingdom would be established. And then the Hillel school of, of rabbis over here is going to say, well, it has to do with loving God and loving others, right? Um, so you have like a very conservative fundamentalist one. You have a very sort of liberal sort of uh, these two sides arguing differently about who's, how do we establish the kingdom of God? Love for others. Um, uh, no, keeping the law of God. And in the middle, you had all these other interpretations. You had the Pharisees or the Tanaitics that would basically say, um, well, we need to purge the land of all the Gentiles, right? Um, and the people need to offer more and more sacrifices. More sacrifices. And then you have the Sadducees who say, who say, we just need to take over the Roman Empire and partner with them, and then we can do this thing. And then you have the Essenes who are saying, no, 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 we need to actually get all the Jewish people and move them out to the desert and start a new kingdom there. Then God will do it. And then you, it goes everywhere. You have these zealots who basically are trying to kill everyone who is not Jewish, who is in place. So there's all these different answers. So it was very normal for a rabbi several times a day to be asked, what good thing must I do to enter the kingdom of God? It was a regular question. It, it is asked five times to Jesus in the scriptures. What good thing must I do? And what they're asking is, what are you teaching? What do you think? How do you think this works? What do you think God wants of us? How do we usher in God's future? Okay? It's what good thing. Okay? So that's the setup. Okay? Now that you're with the mindset of the, of, of the Jewish people. Here we go. Jesus turns and says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, first off, he's a rabbi. Here's a question. Rabbis always respond with other questions. I love it. It's brilliant. Okay. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. Uh, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Interesting question. Jesus replies, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? So, he asked Jesus, 
What commandments? Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he says, which commandments? Now, first off, Jesus didn't say the Torah. He didn't say the law. He said the commandments. That means he's referring to the Ten Commandments, okay? And a lot of Jews emphasize those. A lot of emphasize different interpretations of the Torah. So, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the guy says, which one? Which ones? Why would he ask this question? Okay. Again, this is fascinating. Um, These are the Ten Commandments. You can split them into groups, into two different groups. I've gone ahead and pre-split them for you. Um, At the top half, you have uh, the duty of human, uh, of mankind to God. The bottom half is the duty of mankind to each other. Okay? Um, The vast majority of Jewish people believe the most important thing that God wanted of his people, if he was going to establish a kingdom, was their allegiance to him. That what really mattered was that they love the Lord their God with all their heart, that, that they remember the Lord as their God, that they don't make false idols, that they don't have other gods before him, that, that they don't take the name of the Lord in vain, that they remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because it's the Lord's day. The vast majority of Jewish people said the most important thing is that you worship God correctly. The right doctrine, um, that you, you are at service when it starts, that you're there, that you worship that you keep the law, that you, that you read every single day, that you tithe, and that you do all of these things. That is the most important thing is your relationship with God. A lot of Christians tend to think this way too. The second half is different. It has to do with our relationship with each other. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. If you go back to Matthew 5, Jesus opens up every one of these and interprets them the way that, that he believes that... Uh, that, that that his father, exactly how he wants him to be interpreted, okay? Um, and it's, it's much deeper. So we went in great depth in that. So this guy says, which, which commandments do we obey? And Jesus' answer is clear. He says, uh, it says, which ones? He inquired, and Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, the second half. This is fascinating, in the ancient world. It may not be fascinating to us. Everyone there would have been like, wait a minute. You're saying the most important thing is not necessarily our worship of God. It's our, it's, it's our love for each other. That's what Jesus is actually saying here. It's not how much we spend all this time um, in worship and exercising sort of uh, mentally rising to this thing and singing praises to God. It's actually how we treat God's other children. Because if you think about it, these are God's children. And how could you tell God that you love God when you are actively hating God's other children? He's going to look at you and say, you want to love me? Turn to your brother and your sister on your right and on your left and love them. That is the best way you can show your love to me, by taking care of those around you. That is why this passage goes directly after we have the children and then we have the rich man. They go back to back because there's some things that this rich man needs to learn. Um, one of the most important things that this guy needed to learn was his particular role that he had in the kingdom of God. Um, so in order to truly understand the, the, the weight of this conversation, what this guy is receiving, um, you need to understand how wealth worked in the ancient world. Um, like I said, there weren't a lot of rich people, um, but also we assume oftentimes that people had the same mindset about money back then that they do now, but they absolutely did not. Um, in the first century world, people didn't, didn't look at the world as a place of unlimited resources like we do. We did, they didn't look at the world and say, well, everybody 
Everybody can make money and get rich because it just simply wasn't possible. There really was a limited amount of resources. There was, a, a, there was only so much land, so much water, so much food to go around. And if someone had more than they needed, that meant others literally had less. It may not be the case today, but when you read the scriptures, you need to go back into their day. This is how it was. Okay? Now, um, in that mindset, having extra clothing, having more than one tool of the same, like two hammers, um, having um, more than one object, um, all of this, having excess was unheard of amongst the vast majority of people. This is difficult for us to, to imagine because we are literally in the top one, 1% of the wealthiest people who have ever walked this earth, us, we are. Even if you don't feel it, you actually are. You have a supercomputer in your pocket, you got here somehow in a car or whatever, you have clean water, you have plenty of clothing. Um, you are likely in the top 1% of the richest people who have ever lived, even though you're looking at other people and saying, wow, they are so rich. You, my friend, are as wealthy as anyone has ever been in history. Okay? So, in the ancient world, though, um, these things that you take for granted were unfathomable. Um, you couldn't have extra things. Where would you put them? You're sleeping in a room with your family on mats that you have made when they were born. And you made a mat, and that is their mat. And you all roll your mats out, and you're sleeping in this room on dirt floors on your mats. And when you're done in the morning, you want to enjoy the living room? Roll up the mats, and you're in your living room. You want in kitchen? Like, move the mats to the side, the rolls, and then put a pot in the middle. You're in the kitchen now. Like, this is how you live. There were no closets. There was no storage units. There was no Penske trucks. There was nothing that you could do to store anything. You walked around every day with the only clothes you owned. This is the life you were living. While there were others, very few, who had everything, including this guy in particular. Okay? Um, this is how the original audience is reading this text. This is how it works. Um, I want you to imagine Matthew's audience. Uh, this, this passage is being read to a church gathering. And there are wealthy and there are incredibly poor. And there's this massive difference between them both. And... They're all doing the same worship. They're all singing the songs, quoting the Shema, praying confession. Um, they're listening to the teachings. They are, they're all tithing. They're all doing all these. They're, they're all just doing specific things. And then this passage gets read, and different members of the audience of Matthew's church are identifying with different people in the story. And Jesus is telling the poor people, you have everything you need to serve in God's kingdom. And then this other guy walks in the scene who has excess, who has far more than anyone around him. And he comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to take part in this kingdom? And he says, he says, the second half of the commandments, the ones that have to do with your relationship with your brothers and sisters. And he says, oh, I've, I've done that all. It's an interesting answer because there are tons of people in that city that were likely starving to death that very day. And he says, you, you've kept all the commands? You've, you're at a place where you feel holy and spiritual. You, you feel like you've, you've really kept everything God wanted. See, this is a big struggle with our church too, like with our church in the modern church at large. Like I have known growing up plenty of people who had read like 
like the, the 25 volume set of like, of, 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 of like, um, oh shoot, Carl, of like Carl Barth's like, like massive volumes of like that he's written and, and they can quote the reformers and they can quote scripture. They've memorized massive swaths of scripture. They know doctrine, they know everything, but in general, they're terrible to everyone around them. But they are convinced that they are holy and that they are doing the right thing. And Matthew writes this passage for people like that who sit around thinking, I have done everything right. Um, I am holy. I am right with God. I have done everything right. And in the meantime, look at all these people that you hate or you're ignoring, who's, who have plight, who have pain, who have something that you can easily take part in helping. And you're like, there's plenty of reasons I won't help them. There are legal reasons, there's political reasons, there's this and this and that. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. This is what Matthew's getting at and this is what Jesus is getting at. Um, that feeling of holiness you have, it's entirely possible that you are lying to yourself because your relationship with people directly correlates with your relationship with God your relationship with everyone around you. Not just a select group of people, everyone. Um, and so there is this self-deception that we tend to have of godliness. Um, let's go to the next passage. All of these things I have kept, the young man said. What still do I lack? And it's a fascinating question. What do I lack? Because this is, again, he's, he's super rich. He has everything he ever, never, ever need tangibly. And he claims to have kept all the laws. Yet he still feels like he's lacking something. And I love this because this is like a, like a trick question Matthew's writing. It's like a, it's interesting, interesting little riddle because he, Jesus says, it's not that you're lacking anything. He, here's what he says. He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Okay, before we dive into this, um, I want to look at the word perfect. Um, we have most people, a, a most modern evangelicals have a post-Reformation sort of understanding of the word perfect in a sense that we think when something is perfect, it is flawless. Um, it doesn't have any scrapes or scratches. It's mint condition, new in the box on eBay. Um, like everything is exactly as it should be, right? Um, it's, it, it means moral fail, morally and ethically like perfect, never done anything wrong. That's how we think of perfect. Um, that is not how, I'm sorry, that's not how the original audience thought of perfect. That's more of a Plato idea that, that, that when you think of a chair, right, this is how Plato described it, everything you see in the world, like there's this music stand, and, and, and then somewhere in heaven, in the heavens, there's this cosmic music, music stand, and so how perfect or good this music stand is depends on like how close it is to the cosmic perfect music stand, right? It's this weird, crazy thing, read Plato sometime, it, it may connect with some of the things you actually heard growing up. Um, now, in the first century, Jewish and Greek mindset, the word perfect has to do with intention, in other words, someone makes a watch and it keeps time. It does exactly what it was intended to do. It is perfect. Paul writes as two synonyms, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, like it does exactly what it was created to do. That's what it means to be perfect. It doesn't mean it doesn't have any scratches or anything like that. Um, it means whatever the designer designed it to do, it actually does. Now, if I take a watch and I start using it as a doorstop, it is not perfect. That's not what it was designed to do. It's not really going to do a great job. It might hold the door. Who knows, depending on how low the cut is on the door. Who knows? But that's not what it's intended to do, so that's not perfect. Perfect is when you pick it up and you put it on your wrist and you look at it and you're like, oh, it tells time. It is perfect. So Jesus is saying, you were created to do a specific thing. You were intended to live a specific way. 
if you want to actually receive the life that you were intended to live, I need you to go get rid of all your stuff. That's what he tells this guy. And it's fascinating because the guy thinks, he says, I must be missing something. Like, what is it that you think I lack? He's probably like self-aggrandizing, honestly. Like, I have everything. I just need, I want somebody to tell me alone. You've got it all. So he tells him, I'm super rich. I've achieved all of the law. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, you're almost ready. You just need to go sell all your stuff. You're not, you're not lacking something. You have too much. Okay? There's people all around you who are suffering. He says, so, so what you should do, should you give it to the poor and then come join me. Now, this is a really fascinating sort of dichotomy that he's painting. It's so fascinating that I had to draw it. Um, now, over here, obviously this is Jesus, the, the things, right? Um, over here, you have children. They're smaller than this guy. They're, sm- they're children. Over here, you have Mr. Rich, right? He's not levitating like Jesus is. He's on the ground. And this is a pile of like whatever you would imagine rich people are piling up. I'm, I, it's goblets in my book. It's just a pile of goblets. Um, big pile of goblets there. Okay, now, Jesus starts off by talking to the children and saying, you guys are good. You're perfect. You have everything you need. You are ready for the kingdom. The kingdom, in fact, is made up of you, a whole bunch of you. Like, you have everything you need for the kingdom. And then he goes to this guy, and he says, you, like, they are perfect in the Greek sense. Like, perfect. You have everything you need to do what you're supposed to do. You can do it. Goes to this guy and says, you're not perfect. You have too much stuff. So, it is actually the extra stuff that has kept this man from following Jesus correctly. And Jesus knows this. Jesus somehow knows that this guy has such a tight grip on his stuff that he is not useful even to serve God in this way. But you can't convince people that, that they're sinners, right? Like no one ever learned they're a sinner by being told. Like that's Timothy Keller, I think. Like no one learned they're a sinner by being told. Instead, you have to find some way to like display it to them. And that's exactly what Jesus does here by like sort of this predicament. He says, if I tell this guy that he's he holds too tightly to all of his stuff and his status and his wealth. He's, he's going to say, no, I don't. In the same way that, like, you tell me I ate too much dessert, I'll be like, no, I didn't. It's a perfect amount. Um, but the scale the next day will show me. Um, the, so Jesus says, I, I can't just tell this guy because he's not going to believe me. I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him. I'm going to tell him. Sell everything and give it to this. Give it to the poor. And he's like, I can't. I can't do that. And this is all fascinating because... Um, these guys have everything they need. When, when one of them ends up with a piece of bread, right? You know what they're going to do? They're going to break it up and they're going to serve each other. Because it's all they got. They have each other. They're in community. They're in family. They're in fellowship. And so they see the needs of each other and they take care of each other. Flip to the book of Acts chapter 2. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see how they're living in their world. Um, this guy, however, he can't give away his stuff because then he'll also lose his status. And all the things that he cares about, all of the things that Jesus literally cares nothing about, he does not care about your status. He's not interested, he's not concerned. He doesn't see you as any higher than the person on the corner asking for money. Exactly the same level, you are the same as the person that you hate. Like, God doesn't look at you any different. And so he says, it's not that you're missing something, it's that you have too much. Have you ever sat down to like relax? Um, You're like, I just need some rest, my brain is exhausted, I've been thinking all day, I've been like staring at my screen, typing, whatever, working. I'm I'm gonna lay down on the couch and just zone out for a few. And you zone out. Oh, this is relaxing. Let me pull out your phone. You have added something that will now guarantee that you will not rest. Okay? We all know this. You're going to get in the Facebook argument. 
about the Trinity or substitutionary atonement. That's what, you're, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> or like which version of the Bible you should use. NIV, by the way. Um, that's what you're going to do. You're going to debate about this stuff. And you're going to wake up an hour, you're gonna, an hour later, you're going to put your phone away and be like, man, I'm tired. Like, you, you added something that took away everything you were trying to do. That's what's going on here. By the way, next week, I'm going to do, uh, continue a little farther in this passage. Uh, and we're going to talk about riches a little more. And we're going to show you a lot of really good examples of wealthy people in the New Testament who held their money wildly different than this guy did and who did incredible things for the kingdom. And that is, to me, one of the most fascinating things when you see all these people around Jesus who it doesn't even say necessarily were wealthy. But when you look into Roman history, you can see who they were and how they got their money. It's the greatest. And so come next week and I'll tell you about that stuff. Anyways, um, here is the problem here. He has too much. And he can't, he can't let it go. So Jesus tells him this. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. And then he says, it says, the young man, when he heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I can't do that. I have great wealth. No one else has great wealth. If I give that away, I'm just like them. Jesus is attacking this foundational thing in this guy's life right? Um, there is um, this, this constant teaching that Jesus, Jesus has. He goes back to, he says, um, here, I'll just put it up here for you. It says, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's not making an argument. He's not saying this is how it should be to like, like put your tre- heart where your treasure is. He's just making a, a literal observation the way you spend your money and your time, the thing that you're chasing all day, that is where your heart is. And so it's not even the money. It's like if, you, if there's some people that you want to help and you need to gather some money to help these people, like where you sent your treasure over here, so that's where your heart is. But you sent your treasure over here, that's where your heart is. And that's why Jesus is always saying, don't store treasures up on earth. Don't do it. That's not what this is for. Your, your, heart should not be, your heart should not be in like the patterns of this world, like the status and all this stuff. That is not what all this is supposed to be about. Um, Jesus instead is, is calling his followers to this joyful life of honest, of carefree unconcern for tangible physical things and, and utmost concern for people. That is what he is doing. That is the most important thing to Jesus. That you... Be unconcerned with tangible stuff and be really, really concerned with the people around you. That is how Jesus is calling his people. I mean, look at what he says in in, in Luke chapter six. Give to everyone who begs from you and of him who takes away your God's, uh, your goods, your goods, do not ask them again. Like if somebody takes it, who cares? It's a thing. Like imagine if you had a posture of your stuff that when like you're sitting out on your, on your, I don't know what kind of life you live, but maybe you're sitting out on your lawn in a lawn chair, right? Drinking like a beer or whatever. And then a car comes by and crashes into your car and destroys it. What if you were like, there goes that. <laughs> like, aren't you mad? The tires were a little bald anyways. I was going to have to buy new ones. It's just, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like a carefree unconcern for your stuff. Not like a, like, not like a just light your own car on fire kind of thing. Instead, it's like, no, like, like the things you own, they don't own you at all. Like they are just things in your life that you are, that, that, that have passed through your hands for a short amount of time to help you love people more and bring restoration to the hurting and guide people to the loving father. But like, this is what these things are all for. And so a life that is so in tune with God and people that should some physical thing be taken away, even a really expensive thing, you might look at it and say, well, that's a relief. Now I don't have to take care of that anymore. 
Like, that, that has been taken from me. Or like, or like, you might say, that's one less thing that actually now threatens to control me. I was kind of worried that that was like starting to control me. And it doesn't now. And I'm, and I'm free from it. Right? Or like, uh, it's one less thing to distract me from the kingdom of God. Or um, one less thing to make someone else feel, feel lower status than me. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody and you suddenly start hiding like your stuff and your lifestyle because you know this person is so poor that you don't want to bring it up because it'll make them feel worse? Or it'll make you like, it'll create a, a, a balance, a status imbalance amongst you? That's a real thing. Like, there are people who have so little that when we actually enter into their presence, we feel like we should hide everything that we have. Um, and what if, like, something was taken away and you're like, what's well, one less thing to actually create this status imbalance? Um, or that's, that's maybe one less thing telling me that somehow I've achieved anything important because I owned one of those, right? Like, the dream of, like, owning a specific automobile with a symbol on it like a specific symbol. Like plenty of cards have plenty of symbols. This one has this symbol, which makes me higher status, right? And God's like, I literally don't care. Literally not even interested. Um, and, and, and instead, what you're doing is you're trying to get your status from there. Uh, imagine if the things you have were taken away. Would your status change? That should mean something. That should mean something. Like, are, do these things actually control you? Do you find your, your, your pleasure and your purpose and your everything in this tangible stuff? Because God has created and designed you in such a way as to, as to you were born into the world with everything that you need to take part in the kingdom of God. And everything that you add to that life actually threatens to hinder that. We have to remember that. I'm not saying like, Quickly get rid of all your stuff. What I'm saying is be mindful that every single thing that you add to your life actually threatens to hinder you from doing God's work. It threatens to. It doesn't mean it does. But it can. If I could give you some pastoral advice, which I'm a pastor, so maybe I should do. Um, I would encourage you to order your life, do everything you can to order your life in a way that minimizes bondage to money and to stuff. Order your life in that way as best you can. And here's the thing. This happens not just with having too much money. It also goes the other way with having too much debt. We've, maybe you've been in a situation where you've bought more than you should and now you have a whole bunch of debt and now you're obligated to pay these people back. And every month you get your check and you're like, well, that was fun. There it goes. And like, this is the life you're living. And then a friend enters in and says, this terrible thing, tragic thing happened and I need help. And you can do nothing for them because you have already promised all your money elsewhere so that you could live a particular kind of lifestyle. Bondage. All of it. Jesus would, would look at that in particular ways and have things to say about all of that. There is a way that we are intended to live in this world that everything that passes through your hands has been put there for you in that time period that you have it to use it to further the kingdom of God, to reconcile to other people, to bring joy to the lives, reconciliation, wholeness, well, uh, health to the lives of the people around you and connect them to 
to the source of all life, which is God, and then to invite them to do the same. So maybe instead of collecting status symbols, we could actually spend our time doing things like the way Paul said. Paul didn't say, um, I collected real, actual physical crowns. He said, he wrote to a church and said, every single one of you, I, I wear you on my head like a crown. Like, you are what I own, and I love it. I am so proud of each and every one of you. And I, the word he uses is like a, a crown you get from winning a race. So it's like a kind of a wreath. And he's like, and I won you. And that's what I've been pursuing is you. You are where my treasure is. Money passed through Paul's hands all the time. And he absolutely used it for the kingdom. And instead of trying to get status symbols, he actually did the opposite. He tried to win people and restore them and enter them into the community so that they could help restore other people. This is the currency of the kingdom. It is mercy. It is grace, love, reconciliation, restoration of all people to God, equality in the church, all of it. That is the dream uh, of the kingdom of God. All of it centered around um, a following of Jesus as king and nobody else. This is what's happening. This is what Jesus is doing here. Next week, we're going to continue this a little farther um, and talk about some of those people who did it right. Okay, So we're going to take communion right now. We're going to, I'm going to invite our communion servers to go ahead and take the elements and, and spread around the room. Um, As we go to communion, this is the symbol of, of Christianity in, t- in its entirety right here. It is, it is the death um, of Christ, the body broken for you. It is it is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, the bread is, is the body. The, the wine is, is the blood of Christ. And it's just a simple, it's a meal that we are sharing. Um, we come to the table and we receive it and we are filled. And everyone brings a different level of spirituality and wealth and, and a different lifestyle and all these different things. And we come to the table, we all receive the same thing. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the restoration of your souls and of your life and the whole world. And then we follow Jesus and we do the same. As the body of Christ, we pour ourselves out for the world around us. Um, and so I want to invite all of you, all of you to, to, um, to take communion with us as we go to prayer. I want you to ponder the ways in which you need to begin to organize your life and order your life so that you are not enslaved by these things in this world. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, Make us whole. And sometimes making us whole means that uh, you take things from us. And so if need be, take some stuff from us. And uh, let us see new life and and new purpose in our relationships. Uh, Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.